Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 31. We're going to be in Numbers 31 this morning as we continue our study of this book. Now, before we get to Numbers chapter 31, I'm going to take you all the way to the other side of the Word of God, to the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the two disciples that were walking down the road to Emmaus discussing the sad nature of the events that had just taken place in Jerusalem. That Christ, Jesus, the one who they thought would be the Messiah, the one that they thought would bring them deliverance, had died on a cross. And all that they had hoped for and all that they had believed seems to have come to an end. But some of his disciples, some of Jesus' disciples, were going around saying that Jesus had actually been risen from the dead and was alive. And they thought, how could these things be? As they walked down the road, a mysterious man came up to them and began asking them questions about why they were sad and what was happening in Jerusalem. And then he revealed that he himself was the resurrected Lord. And he said to them that they should have known that these things would happen to the Christ. He says in verse 25 of chapter 24 of Luke, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Beginning with Moses, beginning with the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Numbers, Jesus opens their eyes to see That it was God's intention from the beginning that the Christ should suffer and die and be raised. And yet, those who do not see it, he says that we are foolish. That we are slow to believe. That we should, as we come to the Scriptures, see that they point to the Christ and that the Christ would suffer and die. As we come to Numbers 31... A passage that is very difficult, that tells us and records for us things that are hard for us to understand. We have to be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ's words. That all of Scripture, all that Moses wrote, is concerning Him and His work. So as we come with that understanding, let us turn our attention now to Numbers 31 Starting in verse 1, I will indicate as we skip from the first section to the second. Hear now God's holy word for us, His people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. 
You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones. And they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire and took all the spoil and all the plunder both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Now to verse 48. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds came near to Moses and said to Moses, Your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. And we have brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself. And Moses and Eleazar the priests received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us go to Him in prayer. Father God, we come to You now. And as we have read Your Word, and as we now come to hear the preaching of Your Word, we pray that You would truly open our eyes to see Christ and Him crucified. We pray, O Father, that we would not be foolish ones, that we would not have a heart that would be slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, but that we would come to Your Word, and that by the power of Your Spirit we would have faith to understand. And we pray it all through Christ Jesus, our gracious Lord. Amen. I want to begin this morning by clearing up what is meant by a holy war. You see, what we have recorded for us in Numbers 31 is a holy war. And it's important before we go forward that we have a clear understanding of what actually constitutes a holy war. 
For throughout history, there have often been those who would use and invoke the name of God to say that their conflict, their war, was holy. Generals and nations have claimed that they have God on their side, that their aims are ordained of God, and therefore God smiles upon their efforts, and any and all means may be employed to achieve their ends. From Constantine's cross in the sky, to the Crusades, to the religious wars of the 16th century, to the English Civil War, to the U.S. Civil War, and beyond, people have sought to use God to legitimize their conflict. And barring the particularities of these conflicts, whether they were justified wars or not, none of these conflicts were technically holy wars. They may have been legitimate wars. They may have been justified wars. But none of them met the biblical criteria to take such a label as holy. So then what is a holy war? Well, if we look at Numbers 31, we will see several features of what makes a war a holy war. The first one is that a conflict... That is, a holy war must be taken up in obedience to a direct command from God. In verse 1 we read, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. A holy war is enacted by the word of God through his appointed prophet Moses. The second thing that we see is that the army was accompanied by the priest Phinehas. Verse 6, And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. You see, to be a holy war, it must be declared by God through his prophet, but it also must be sanctified by God through his priest. Phinehas went forth with the holy vessels and the trumpets of the Lord. And the third aspect of a holy war is that God is present in a holy war to fight on behalf of those whom He has called. It is assumed that the holy vessels of the sanctuary would include the Ark of the Covenant. That is, the very resting place of God amongst His people. And therefore, as the army of Israel marched out to war, they marched out with the presence of God as their king going before them to fight the battle on their behalf. Therefore, they only need a portion of their fighting force. And as we read, they miraculously incurred no casualties in this battle. For the Lord went before them as king. And finally, a holy war is fought by a holy people. Israel was a people called out by the Lord, set apart for His own possession. No defilement could be in the camp. And so in summary, a holy war is instituted by God through His prophet. It's sanctified through God's appointed priest. It's led by God as the King of His people and it is fought by God's own people. God's prophet, God's priest, God's king, God's people. And if anyone ever calls you to a war saying that it is holy, 
If you've ever been taught that a war was holy, then you need to make sure that it fits these parameters. God's prophet, God's priest, God's king, God's people. And therefore, as we come to Numbers 31, we don't come to understand how geopolitical wars are to be fought. The ethics of what a war looks like as Christians go to war. We should not read this text and believe that it's a normative example of how wars should be waged. We come to this text to understand what God's purposes are for a holy war. For if we are called to a holy war, then we must be ready to take up that call, understanding what it is that God is calling us to do. Now, this whole episode with Midian began back in chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. If you remember, the Midianites tempted the people of Israel to idolatry through sexual seduction. Many in Israel turned from worshiping the Lord, and they went after the women of Midian and eventually began to worship Baal of Peor. If you remember, in response to this idolatry, the Lord brought judgment upon the leaders of Israel as well as a plague upon the people. But then at the end of the episode, the Lord commanded Israel through Moses, harass the Midianites and strike them down for they have harassed you with their wiles, while which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor. The first thing that I want you to see about God's purposes for a holy war is that it is aimed at judgment for sin. A holy war is a judgment on sin. God's judgment began with the people of Israel but He did not stop with Israel, but His judgment also extended to the Midianites who purposefully brought the people of Israel into idolatry. And therefore, the Lord begins His judgment with Israel. But then, the Lord moves to the people of Midian. For Israel was called to kill all the males and the non-virgin females of Midian. Now, I have to admit, it's unsettling to be faced with the harsh realities of sin and judgment. It's very different than the God that many of us are used to or even comfortable with. But the true Lord has said, vengeance is mine. The Lord says, see now that I, even I am He and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For truly it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the Lord will come as a man of war to bring the judgment of death for sin. And while this is unsettling, and while it is often difficult for us to understand, it is also the very reason why the Lord Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. For as we see the judgment of both Israel and Midian in this chapter, our eyes must be turned to the Lord's Christ. For God's judgment of sin 
or against sin rather, is death. He warned our first parents that they would die if they disobeyed, but they decided to declare war on God and rebelled against their king. And therefore, from the moment of rebellion, the sons of Adam have endured God's warfare against sin. In a holy war, the Lord's purpose is to display His judgment against those who would rebel against His Word. And on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the curse of His people's rebellion. He joined Himself to a people who were at war with God. He became one with the warring faction against the Lord who were under the curse of death. And in that moment, Jesus took upon Himself the sin of this people. God the Father declared a holy war against God the Son to display to the world His just judgment of death for sin. You see, Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice. What the Bible calls a propitiatory sacrifice. Now that's a big word. But we need big words to understand big concepts. Propitiatory means a sacrifice that satisfies the judgment of God against sin. It's a sacrifice that absorbs or satisfies the wrath of God. You see, God is serious about sin. And while we might not like His command to execute the people of Midian for their sin, we must be faced with the reality that God did not spare even His own Son in His holy war to bring an end to sin in His good creation. Rather, as First John, John chapter 4 says, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is God's purpose for a holy war? His first purpose is the judgment of sin. So then, if God's holy war is to bring judgment, judgment for sin is death, why then were the people of Israel not completely consumed as the people of Midian? When the sword of God's judgment falls, why is it that Israel does not incur the same death sentence as the Gentiles? Well, as you remember from Numbers 25, the plague that came against Israel for their sin with Midian came to an end through the execution of the offending party by Phinehas the priest. There, if you... Remember from Numbers 25, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath, the Lord says, from the people of Israel, so that I did not consume the people of Israel. For he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. You see, atonement is an act that covers and purges sin. And Phinehas, acting as the priest, The intercessor between God and His people makes atonement for the people of Israel through His zealous judgment against the sin of idolatry. In Numbers 31, we see this word atonement show up again in verse 50. Presumably, what we see here is that 
the people of Israel, the commanders, shouldn't have taken a census of their men after the war. It was an unauthorized sentence following the battle with Midian. And therefore, to make atonement to the Lord, they offered to him these articles of gold. You see, it's God's purpose in a holy war, not only to bring judgment, but rather through judgment to bring atonement. That is to purge sin out of his people. As Phineas executed judgment against the idolatry of Midian, he also brought reconciliation between the Lord and the people of Israel. Therefore, a holy war does not just bring judgment for sin, but a holy war also makes atonement for sin. For the people of Israel could have just as easily been wiped out for their sin as Midian was. But they had an intercessor. They had one who came between them and the Lord and offered atonement that the holy war might not consume them. And here again we are led to the cross of Jesus Christ. For Jesus did not go to the cross merely to receive the judgment that we deserve. But He also went to the cross to make atonement through His own blood. That is, He went to the cross to receive in His body the judgment for our sin. And by His death to bring us back into relationship with God. For we are not merely forgiven of our sin, as great as that is, as wonderful as that is, that we have been forgiven of our sin through God's judgment on Christ. But more than that, through the blood of Christ, we are received back into fellowship with God. He receives us back into fellowship with Himself. You see, God's holy war was not merely to bring judgment against the sin of Midian, but also to bring atonement to the people of Israel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are under His wrath and curse, but by His holy war, the Lord has made atonement for those who are called out to be His people, so that they are not consumed. And therefore, a holy war, as hard as it is, as difficult as it is for us to look at, is good news for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For through the atonement of a holy war, we are brought back into relationship with God. So the Lord's purpose in a holy war is judgment. His purpose is atonement. And the final thing that we see is that the Lord's purpose in a holy war is ultimately peace. Now this might sound like an oxymoron that the purpose of a holy war is peace. But in reality, peace is what God desires for His people. As we have followed the people of Israel through the book of Numbers, we have been reminded that the Lord is seeking to bring His people to a place of rest, a place of peace. He has been seeking to give them the blessing that He has promised to His to their father Abraham. That is, he is leading them in this holy war so that he might bring to them a holy peace. At the end of the book of Joshua, after Israel has come to the end of this holy war to take the land of Canaan, we read, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, 
For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You see, God's holy war is aimed at bringing a promised peace to His people. For sin has brought conflict. Sin has brought war. But God's holy war brings an end to sin through judgment and brings peace through atonement. And here again we see God's holy war most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. For as the wrath of God, as His judgment for sin was poured out upon Christ, as the blood of Christ was poured out to bring atonement, we see that the blood of Christ at the cross brought us peace with God. You see, God's holy war continues as long as there is sin in this world. His judgment continues to go forth. But to all who come to Him in faith, they will receive peace through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must place our full trust in the reality that God's holy war against our sin has come to an end in the death of Jesus. We must trust that because of His death, never again will those who trust in Christ be under the wrath and judgment of God, but rather they will receive His eternal blessing of peace through Jesus Christ. And it means that the way that God's people now wage a holy war can no longer be a physical battle against flesh and blood, but rather we engage in God's holy war through the declaration of the Gospel. We bring the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, which declares God's peace for all who come to Christ in faith, but eternal judgment for those who reject His Word. For we do not battle against flesh and blood, but rather we fight the holy war of God through the proclamation of the Gospel of Christ. To some it will be an aroma from death to death. For others it will be the aroma of life to life. God's holy war continues. It is going forward. However, the battle is not of the flesh. For in Christ, the punishment for sin has been offered and atonement has been made. And it is now our job as soldiers of Christ to proclaim the peace of the Gospel won by God's holy war on the cross. But the skeptic in me asks this. Am I just spiritualizing a difficult text? A text that seems to be condoning genocide? Am I sidestepping the hard facts of this passage and not really dealing with the reality that we have God commanding His people to kill everyone in the city? If I would have read the whole passage, you would have seen that Moses was upset with the soldiers because they only killed the males. And they did not kill the male little ones. And they did not kill the non-virgin females. And so they had to continue this war. I must admit that this is one of the most difficult aspects of God's Word. We come to in the Old Testament, God commanding everyone to be killed in a certain city or a certain nation. 
The command to kill even the little ones makes my heart break. For how would God command such an act? And yet we must come back to the reality that all death, whether it's death by a sword or by a flood or by a plague or even by old age, is the result of our own sin. All death is a result of God's judgment against sin. It is, therefore, the particular aspect of commanding Israel to execute judgment as a mode of God's judgment that we wrestle with in this passage. Nevertheless, it is not as though the Lord does not have skin in the game here as it were. For in His holy war against sin, the Lord God offered His own little one, His only begotten Son, to end this war. For the Lord shed His own blood so that the holy war against sin might end in Him. So that not just the sons of Israel, but the sons of Midian, the sons of the Greeks, the sons of the Romans, the sons of America, the sons of all the Gentile nations might no longer fall by the sword of God's judgment, but rather they might receive life and peace and rest through Jesus Christ. God's holy war against sin was not merely peace for one nation, but it was peace for all who come to Him through Jesus Christ. And therefore, this morning, as we hear this hard word, if your heart breaks to hear that nations are falling under the just judgment of God for their sin, our response must not be turning away and disgust from God, but it must be a joyful acceptance of a call to a holy war. A holy war that has been declared by God's prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ that has been sanctified by the Lord's priest, the Lord Jesus Christ offering His blood on the cross, and led by God's holy King, the Lord Jesus Christ who commands us as His people to go forth into all nations, making disciples of all peoples, promising that He will never leave us, but will be with us even to the end of the age. I began this sermon by telling you that if someone ever called you to a holy war, you better make sure that it was instituted by God through His prophet. That it was sanctified by God through His priest. That it was led by God through His King. And that is what you have in God's Word. A command to go forth, not with a physical sword, but with the sword of the Spirit proclaiming the Gospel of Christ that all who place their faith in Him will through the blood of Christ be brought back into His family and will receive peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we come to You now in this time. And we pray, O God, that men 
and women and little ones. Each of us who have been born at enmity with God, with the sword of judgment over us, we pray that that sword of judgment would fall upon Christ, that we might receive the forgiveness of sins, not because of anything that we have done, but only for the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ would go to receive what we deserve. Grant that we may receive this truth into our hearts. We pray that You would guard it by Your grace against the schemes of the enemy, against the cares of life that seek to steal it away. And we pray, may the faith and hope and love which Your grace has brought to life within us flourish and grow to full maturity so that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ we may not be found lacking, but we may be abounding in all good fruit and works through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.